0: Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives, March 25th through 28th. Registration at EmpowerMissouri.org WOA.
1: By most accounts, the 2018 election cycle was not so good for Missouri Democrats, but one bright spot was in Jackson County where Democrat Carrie Engle flipped a seat that was previously represented by a Republican. The Lee Summit Democrat joins us on the latest edition of Politically Speaking to talk about her first year in the Missouri House and what to expect during the 2020 legislative session. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics.
2: It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there.
0: But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like
2: you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to
1: uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in St. Louis is my co-host.
3: Julie O'Donoghue.
1: Our special co-host today, KCUR's political reporter.
3: Aviva Okus and Haberman.
1: And our special guest today, the state representative from the 35th House District of Missouri.
4: Carrie Engel.
1: Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Representative. I, I got to meet you for the first time at the Truman Dinner in St. Louis and after talking with you, I was like, she definitely has to come on this podcast because she is a, a really interesting and cool person. So
0: We should say Representative Engel is joining us from Kansas City. She okay.
1: is, through the magic of radio, by the way. Um, so, I guess, I guess one of the reasons why uh, I was interested in having you on is you do have Oklahoma lineage. And as anybody who listens to the show knows, I, my grandmother is from Ponca City, Oklahoma. Um, so I want you to give us a little bit about your background and also just pump up the state of Oklahoma for me if you can.
4: Well, Jason, I lived in Ponca City for a while. No way. Yes, I absolutely did. Oh my I gosh! Went, I lived. I actually went to school there for fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. This so. is this
1: is incredible. This show is already the best show ever. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah. So, um, I'm a I'm a military brat. Um, my kids or my parents originally are from Oklahoma, and so that's kind of where our home base was. But, um, I lived all over the state, and my dad was actually stationed in Germany for three years. Um, during Desert Storm, so we were we were stationed overseas. Um, my mom worked um, at an Army hospital in Longstool, and I went. I was in the Dodd school system for
3: from first through third grade. And you also have kind of a background in uh, social work as well. How mm-hmm. does that kind of affect how you think about politics and uh, legislation? Oh my gosh. Um, the social the social work perspective, the social
4: welfare perspective, really, um, it's a set of values more than anything else. Um, and I when you when you kind of look through the social welfare lens, um, it informs all of my views on on politics, um, making sure that we're doing um, our very best to um, engage and enable people to live lives that are full of dignity and. Um, and have make sure that all of their basic needs are being met um, makes us a better society as a whole.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into politics, like your, you know, first foray into politics?
4: Yeah. So um I'm I'm kind of one of those um kind of one of those oddballs that that kind of fell into it or was propelled into it, I should say, um post November 2016. Um, I, was, I was on maternity leave with my daughter, who's three now, and had a lot of time to, um, to kind of think about the results of the election and um, the world in which I wanted my children to grow up um, and the values that I wanted to espouse. And it wasn't enough to tell them um, what I didn't like about the world around me. Um, I wanted to show them how to improve it. Um, and how we could live our values through public service. And so I decided to kind of take a leap of faith um, and, and join the circus that is Jefferson City.
1: We've, we've had uh, recently representative-elect Trish Gunby on the program, and Julie and Joe Manis talked about flipping a seat from red to blue. But you 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 did that almost a, a year and a half ago or two years ago. Actually, it was a year ago. Uh, mm-hmm. we, not not, not that... Let me rephrase that.
4: Was it a decade ago? Jason? It, it was basically a decade ago.
1: Actually, I think I'm going to keep that in. That's pretty funny. Uh, but you, you actually flipped a seat from red to blue before Trish Gunby, and I want you to talk about what went into making that happen.
4: Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I had an incredible team of, um, of staff, of paid staff, and also volunteers that were absolutely dedicated. Um, to really, truly serving the district and making sure that all of the constituents' voices were heard. So um, none of this could have happened without that support team around me. Um, but we, we, were really, we really had a mission of talking to all voters. Because it was a red to blue district and because it's a very purple district, it was really important to me that we not just knock Democrats' doors, and we not, not just knock doors that we knew that we could flip. Um, I wanted. I I knocked doors that had Trump signs. Um, I knocked doors that had um, my opponent signs in the yard, frankly, um, and because I thought it was really, really important to at least have that conversation um, and to really, more more than anything, to hear to hear the concerns um, and the values that that my neighbors had, right? And to make sure that, and kind of what I would say to them um, when they would say, you know, well, I'm a Republican, I'm never gonna vote for you. I would say, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you're an active voter, first of all. Um, and second of all, whether you vote for me or not, I hope that you feel comfortable reaching out to talk to me about any concerns you have with legislation, um, with anything that you need help or support with um, at in state government, because I'm going to serve you regardless. So when you got
0: to the House, what surprised you the most about being a representative? What were you not prepared for?
4: I've worked in psychiatric hospitals and I've I've worked in um, um, schools and hospitals, and so I have seen a lot of. Um, it's it's kind of hard to shock me. Like I have a pretty um, high shock threshold, and so I wouldn't say that I was I was particularly surprised or um, by much. Um, I was I would say I was more disappointed um, in a lot of things. Um, there were a lot of times that people would come after a hard vote and say, you know, I really didn't want to vote like that. And I felt a lot of pressure to vote the way I voted, and now I regret it. Um, and so I would, say, I would say it's kind of disappointing because I think um, our constituents want us to reflect the values that they hold and so when we when we don't do that, and when we count out a pressure in Jefferson City, I think that we're doing a disservice to our constituents. Can you give
0: me an idea of what you don't have to name names necessarily, but what what type <laughs> of difficult votes you're talking about where people said, "I wish i I have voted differently, or part of me wishes I had voted differently
4: sure um well i I think um House Bill 126 is a really good example of that. Um, I've had numerous members of the majority party um, come to me both before and after that vote.
1: And by the way, for our listeners, HB 126 is the eight-week abortion ban. If I'm not mis- if I'm getting my bill number correct, that's right. But continue, right. Representative.
4: Um, and you know, came to me and said that you know they they felt um, that they were trapped in a corner by that bill. And that they had to vote in favor of it, um, although they would have, um, they would have liked to vote against it because it didn't include exceptions for rape and incest, and that was something that they considered to be far too extreme and didn't reflect their values and the values of their constituents.
1: I'm going to play a clip now from a speech that you, that Representative Engel made on the House floor on the last day of session about HB 126, the what eight-week abortion ban.
2: I came here to fight for your rights, Hattie, rights your brother will never have threatened, rights to make the most intimate, intricate decisions anyone can ever make and that no one should be making on your behalf. I have sat with little girls not much older than you, and I have listened to them talk about people they trusted hurting them, stealing their innocence and their trust in the world. I have held their hands as they cried and blamed themselves. I have worked with them to heal from pain that so many women are forced to endure. And I will teach you how to defend yourself physically, how to hold keys between your knuckles, how to spot someone following you, how to watch your drink, how to lock your door the second you enter your car, and how to look for warning signs in men's you thought you could trust. Things I will never have to teach your brother.
1: So for our listeners, Representative Engel was reading a letter that she wrote to her daughter that she mentioned on the top of the show. I just have to ask, like, what was it like making that address?
4: Um, horrible. It was um and it I mean it's it's still it's still really hard to listen to. Um the emotions were very, very real that day. Um I I wrote that letter um it, in a time when I was um, just kind of, I was I was devastated at what was going on, and I was receiving a lot of phone calls and emails from you know uh, women in my district and women around the state and women around the, the world, frankly, um, about their own sexual assaults um, and how they felt like they were not being heard by their legislators and they were not being values valued and their experiences were not being heard. Um, And I was and I was reflecting on all of that with, you know, my my experience in investigating sexual abuse and working as a therapist um, and helping people with trauma and helping people through trauma. Um, And so it's 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 really visceral and it's really real. Um, It was it was a really, really hard day um, and it was never a speech I wanted to give.
1: So, it's been, I think, about four or five months since that bill passed. It's now kind of winding through the court system. And from talking with people like Trish Gunby and her Republican opponent, they didn't really hear a lot about that bill or the issue of abortion rights when they were going door to door during that special election. I want to ask you are you still hearing from your constituents about the eight week abortion ban? And has anybody in the legislature that you've interacted with? Kind of in this interim, talked about that last day of session, which I agree with, was incredibly raw, emotional day that observers will never forget. But I assure, I assume, participants of that are still reeling from.
4: Right, um, you know, I, I hear, I hear a lot of concerns from my constituents um, regarding regarding that bill and regarding that mentality of not listening to to what it's being said from victims. Um, from from women who who are going to have to who are going to have to go through this um, i i think that there's a lot to be said about that we you know we're going into an election year um, i i don't think that this bill pulled the way that it was believed that it would pull amongst Missouri voters and so i expect to see a walk back of the more contentious parts of the bill Um, like the lack of exceptions for rape and incest, Um, because they were they're so unpopular across the state. Um, This wasn't something that that the citizens of the state wanted. Um, And I I think that um, the majority was tone deaf when it came to this issue.
0: Representative, this is Julie. Um, I you alluded to in that clip, but you've also alluded to in the interview that You know, you work with people, uh, with children, I'm assuming, who have been victims of of rape or incest. I I don't Mm -hmm. think a lot of us talk to people who are survivors of something like that on a regular basis. What do you think people who may have supported this bill don't necessarily understand about being in that type of situation. And by being in that type of situation, I mean having gone through rape or incest. Like, what do you think they're missing? Because it seems to be um, driving part of your reaction is knowing how people uh, have to process an experience like that.
4: Well, I think it's exactly that, is that there's a process um, when someone goes through um, something that that's that traumatic, it's going to take a while for them to um, disclose it. They may never disclose it. And so, um, you, you know, my background, I, I worked I worked for the children's division where I investigated child abuse and neglect. And, um, you know, when kids would disclose, they would often um, recant when they saw that um, the offender, um, their assailant, um, that there would be there was there was negative fallback right so or negative fallout where um, if mom is really upset now because dad is in jail and now they can't make ends meet and they have to move well it would be easier if I said it didn't happen and that's so so common especially for kids to do um, and it's so brave for them to initially you know come out and and take that huge leap and be so vulnerable when. There are so many things stacked against them, and there, there can be so much fallout, right? Um, so to not just have something th- this hor- horrific happen to you, but now the threat of um, I'm going to destroy relationships um, within my family, within my, you know, my, my family's close group of friends. I'm going to probably have to change schools, change neighborhoods, change homes. Um, this is all probably my fault. So I sh- probably shouldn't tell anyone. And so there's so much shame built into it. Um, and you have, to, you have to realize that because of that shame, so many people don't, don't come out and say anything. Um, and when you put a time limit on um, when people can, can make this choice to have an abortion because they have been sexually assaulted or there has been a case of incest, right? Um, and, and imagine there now being a, a time period wrapped into that. And so you've got a child having to take this giant leap of faith to trust someone to talk about the most horrific situation in their entire life, to take this huge leap that, you know, all of these bad things may happen, but I'm going to reach out to someone and tell them within this really short time
1: period. And you it's meant- just so unlikely. Oh, sorry. I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt <laughs> No, Jill. no, no.
4: Sorry. <laughs>
1: um You mentioned that you think that there may be a walk back on this bill in 2020. What do you mean by that? And are you are you sensing that th- that the Republicans may come back and put rape and incest exceptions on this legislation?
4: I do. I do foresee that um, there's already been chatter that this is not something that any statewide um, candidates on the Republican side want to talk about um, on the road, because it, it, it frankly doesn't do well. Um, when it's I think when you're when you're talking theoretically about something, um, it's, it's a little bit different than thinking about applying it to your own child. Or your sister, um, or someone that you care about, and so um, I, I, I can see that um, with with 2020 being an election year, I, I can see them trying to um, maybe soften it a bit and add in those um, those exceptions.
1: We're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be back with Representative Carrie Engel.
2: If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.
1: And we're back with Representative Carrie Ingle. Aviva, I think you had a question about uh, the fact that Representative Ingle will be in Democratic leadership this year.
3: Yeah. And so you're also kind of talking about this a little bit earlier about, you know, members sometimes feeling pressured into votes, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting with your new position as minority <laughs> women. Um, so how do you think about that position and how you're, how you're going to approach it?
4: Right. Um,
3: because I believe
4: that we do need to be, re- be reflective of our districts, I, I absolutely take that into account. And that's conversation that I've already been having with members of my caucus. Um, I, you know, as a, as, as a freshman elected to leadership, there's there's a bit of a learning curve there, too. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that my enthusiasm will kind of help close that gap. Um but I, I think it's really important that we're all on the same page. But I think it's really important for members of my caucus's voice to be heard. I want to make sure that every member of my caucus understands every bill that is on the floor, especially more contentious bills, that we understand all the concepts within. Um, and also that we're working with the other side of the aisle um, and to make any necessary changes um, and be helpful in any way that we can. Um, I think that something that's kind of interesting about my role is that I I have a lot of friends on the other side of the aisle. Um, A lot of my closest friends in the legislature are on the other side of the aisle. And I think that um, utilizing some of those relationships to make positive changes to bills um, can be really, really helpful to both both sides.
3: You mentioned there's kind of this... um learning curve, you know, mm-hmm. from being a member to now being in uh, a leadership position, what are some of the things that you're finding out with this new position?
4: Well, I mean, there's, there's just so much that happens behind the scenes, right? Like I'm getting to see how the sausage sausage is made. And so um, it's, it's exciting. Um, it's also, a you know, it's, it's a huge responsibility that I take very seriously. And so I am just, I'm hoping and praying that I can rise to the occasion um but as as, you know, I can't really talk about how well, the sausage is made. And so, um, but a, a lot of behind the scenes things that go into growing our caucus and um, making sure that everyone um, feels included and valued and that we are we are growing, right? And we're going out and we're recruiting and we're going across the state and finding the best candidates.
1: One issue that I do want to ask about since it is it involves, I guess, whipping votes is the impending, effort to undo the new state legislative redistricting system, which was Mm -hmm. known as Clean Missouri. I've talked to a lot of members of your caucus, especially African-American ones, and I understand that I think only one person voted to basically undo what the voters voted on in 2018. But I do sense there's a lot of angst, especially among black Democrats, that this new system is going to potentially make their districts more white and put the African-American representation at risk. Have you heard a lot of conversation about that issue in the interim, given that it's almost assuredly going to come up in the beginning of session?
4: You know, I have, um, and I I share their concerns. I want to make sure that we have true representation um, of our districts, and particularly um, in, you know, in Kansas City and St. Louis. Um, We want to make sure that we continue to have black representation, representation matters, Um, And I want to make sure that we are we're looking at all of that. Um, I I think that there are a lot of people that are concerned about redistricting um, in that it affects our our reelections. Right. And so um, I I, I absolutely expect to see to see clean Missouri um, in the 2020 session. So moving on to.
0: Or I guess not moving on, because you just said you were talking about the 2020 session. But let's talk about other issues in the 2020 <laughs> session, Representative. What do you, what do you expect the uh, General Assembly is going to, like, what are going to be the hot topics that uh, you expect to see a lot of discussion around?
4: So, obviously, Clean Missouri, like we just said. Um, I, I, I think that a lot of it surround. I think that it'll probably be divvied up a little bit. I think that we're going to see a lot of, um, I think that we may be keeping the $5 limit on lobbyists contributions, um, but changing a lot of the sunshine law aspects to our constituent contacts, which I have a lot of concerns with. Um, I believe that my work product um because I am um, a servant of my district, right, I, they are, I'm employed by them, that they should have access to my work product and um, people with nothing to hide, hide nothing. Um, HIPAA protects everything that is protected information anyhow. And so none of that information would be sunshinable. And so I, I think that um, arguments regarding sunshining um, and, and, and privacy of constituent conversations is disingenuous. Um, So that's kind of my clean Missouri piece. Um, I I think another thing that's going to be huge in 2020 is gun laws. I think we're going to be talking about um, guns on campuses, guns in daycares, guns in public transit. Um, There's going to be a lot of talk about um, the boyfriend loophole, um, red flag laws. Um, I think that that is going to be absolutely astronomically huge next session. I think that that's probably going to be the focus.
0: Do you actually think there's going to be talk about red flag laws and restrictions or are there going to be bills filed that don't get heard? Because I have to say, I've been talking to several Republicans over the last few days, and many of them have not had a great reaction to the governor coming out and supporting some very modest gun restrictions. And they seem to not be interested in hearing any bills along those
4: lines at all. I, I think it being 2020 um, puts a lot of things um, on the table in ways that it wouldn't be in a non-election year. Um, I, I, I do know that there are some Republicans who want to carry bills um, to that, to, regarding red flag laws and closing the loopholes. And so um, whether, whether or not those bills will be heard or not is, is another story. But I do know that there is an appetite to at least carry them
3: you talked a little bit about it with with guns, but uh, just kind of more broadly, how do you think the 2020 race will affect, you know, the bills that are being discussed and voted on? I
4: think that 2020 is going to be an absolute roller coaster for everyone in the Capitol. Um, I think with what's happening in national politics, I think, I think that there's probably going to be some trickle down. Um, And so I think that as often is the case um, in election years, I think people will try to appeal to their their base voters, and so I think we are going to see some of the more extreme, um, the ex- more extreme takes on bills. And I think we're going to hear more extreme floor speeches. To be honest with you, like people trying to get that that clip.
1: In the last few minutes that we have, I do want to talk about some of the bills that you have pre-filed. One has to do with Title Nine regulations, which. As many people who follow Missouri politics knows, it's been a very hot topic of late. I want you to explain the Enough Is Enough Act.
4: Sure. Um, so this this um, Title IX Reform Act would would basically um, go back to the Obama era um, guidelines, and so it would establish um, it would you know it would define sexual assault. Um, it would um, it would. Um, mandate that every institution of higher education, you know, adopt sexual assault policies derived from evidence-based and peer-reviewed research, and display those policies where students can access them. Um, and that they would um, they would ad- uh, adopt an affirmative consent standard in which. Um, in de- in determining whether the parties consented to sexual activity and really, you know, explained that affirmative consent, so it would, it would, it would say that the opening of an investigation by a law enforcement agency into a student's report of sexual assault. Um, shall not relieve the institution of higher education from the obligation to provide accommodations for all students involved in the reported incident and to follow the procedures regarding of, re- regarding reports of sexual assault that apply in the absence of a law enforcement investigation. So um, it, it lays out a lot of guidelines that are really both best practice. Um, they provide due process rights as well as protecting um, the victim or the alleged victim. Um, as well as the accused during the process.
1: So I mentioned in the wind up to this question that this has been a hot topic in Missouri. And that's because there was an effort last session to substantially change basically the Title IX situation in Missouri. And as the Kansas City Star reported, it was spearheaded by lobbyist Richard McIntosh, whose son was kicked out of Washington University because of a Title IX situation. Now, I've read in other publications that Macintosh is going to try and reframe this as kind of an injustice and is going to use it as a use his son's situation for that matter as kind of an impetus to to change the system. I want to get your impressions of of, of, of that going forward, because I, I feel like that I feel like that may seem like inside baseball, but I do know from talking to a lot of legislators that it caused quite the controversy when this legislation kind of came to the, the forefront.
4: It absolutely did. Um, and it, it was one of those opportunities to for a lot of us to really work across the aisle um, with people that were just as horrified about it as, as frankly, I was. Um, anytime that we're talking about getting rid of rape shield laws um, and really... Um, you know, allowing the the alleged victim to be cross-examined by the accuser um, is a really, really um, horrifying proposition. And so, um, I I don't think that this will be coming in 2020. I don't think that it's um, good politics for the majority party. Um, I don't think that it will pull well. And I don't I don't see them um, I don't see them I, I don't see them taking another bite of this apple. A lot of a lot of our universities have student mediators. That I mean, they're student panels that go that have these student these Title IX hearings, right? Um, but and the, there's no standardized training that they go through, and so I think that that's. That's really concerning. Um, I know that, you know, a, a lot of times when you hear people talk about these bills, when I hear legislators talk about these bills, they come at it from, well, I have a son. Well, I have a son and a daughter. And I can tell you that I want um, both of them to have access to due process when they go to school, but I want them to also be protected, right? Um, and I think that that's, that's that's paramount. I want them both to feel safe and, and them both to feel like if something does happen, um, that there will be, um, you know, there'll be consequences, and that they will have access to services that they need, and that's something that my bill addresses, that the that the university shall provide services um, to all victims of sexual assault on campuses.
1: An- another leg- piece of legislation that you filed involves prohibiting a child placing agency that contracts with the state to provide foster ser- care services from discriminating against a family because mm-hmm. of the sexual orientation of any family member. I also was told before the show you you sponsored legislation that was similar except with religion as well. Mm-hmm. I want you to talk about why you feel this bill is necessary and what if you've heard about this particular problem from constituents right. or anything like that.
4: So we have, um, this this bill really comes from, we have a We have a huge lack of foster homes in this state. Um, A huge, huge population of our foster kids are in residential facilities, which um, when we look at research, there's just such poor outcomes for those kids. Um, They're far less likely to be adopted um, or to have any form of permanency before aging out of the system. Um, kids don't do well in residential settings. Um, We have a federal law that was passed last year um, that is going into effect that states that we can't have kids who don't have treatment needs to to be in these residential facilities, right? And so um, we need to make sure that we have foster homes that reflect our kids in care. We have a lot of LGBT kids in care. Um, And these kids have really, really high needs Um, Because they are way more susceptible to um, suicidal ideation, to substance abuse, to self-harm, to being bullied, um, and to having far more negative outcomes, right? And so um, I want to make sure that these kids have um, positive role models within their own communities. Um, And research says that, you know, they're going to have better outcomes in in family-like environments. And so I say we do whatever we can to incentivize foster parents um, to get licensed and to to get these kiddos in safe homes.
1: Well, Representative, before we let you go, I want to ask you the question we have been asking all first-time yes, And we want you to name something in your district, a a place, a a park, a, a restaurant, a library... Uh, the record if there's like a recorder of deeds uh, satellite office <laughs> um, what, what would what would be something in your district that you want to show off to our tens and tens of listeners
4: oh can I say a district in my district um, sure so the downtown area of Lee summit is incredible we just won um, a best neighborhoods in America. Um, award and I could not be prouder of the small businesses and our city council and all the planning commissions that have really come together to make our downtown shine. Um, we have a ton of restaurants and bars and um, place and parks and um, it's just an amazing place to go and take your family. We're always having um, parades and festivals and it's it's magical. Um, I would recommend everyone across the state come visit downtown Lee Summit. Um, it's absolutely. You don't even need to go into Kansas City. You have everything you need right there. You can get barbecue. You can go out for a drink. Listen to a live band. It's all right there.
1: Well, after I visit that Festus Brewery that uh, Representative Ruth <laughs> talked about, I think I'll head over to Lee <laughs> Summit. Thank you, Representative, for for coming on the show for all of our stories. STLPublicRadio.org for all of Aviva's stories. Go to KCUR.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Julie on Twitter at.
0: J. S. O. Donahue.
1: How could people follow you on Twitter, Aviva?
3: Aviva Okeson.
1: Can you spell that, by the way? Yeah.
3: <laughs> A-V-I-V-A-O-K-E-S-O-N.
1: Thank you. And, Representative, are you on Twitter or any other parts of I the World am. Wide Web? I am,
4: yeah. I am on Twitter. I am at Rep. Carrie Ingle.
1: Thank you very much. Until next time, so long. That's my
4: daughter in the water.
3: Everything she knows. Everything she knows everything I say she takes the heart Everything She takes, she takes apart.